Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLF Asheville. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks, for all you do in the music world. WalterParks.com if you are interested in that. Also, if you're interested in Twice Five Miles, the name, you can go to TwiceFiveMiles.com and learn about how the name came to be. I will tell you, it comes from a poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge titled Kubla Khan. TwiceFiveMiles.com if you want to know more about that. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Nave at jamesnave.com. If you have any questions or you're curious about the people on the show or just like to send a comment my way, the door is open. Would love to love to see your comment on my digital screen. Now, today we have a, a guest. His name is Moody Black. And Moody Black has been in our community in the Southeast for many, many years as a poet, as a spoken word artist, as a as a creator. He comes from South Carolina and he's been at the Leaf Festival often. And, and so he's also known in the world as as somebody who knows how to do poetry slams, but also knows how to do many other things as well. And so I am so pleased to have Moody Black on the show with us for the next hour. So Moody Black, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thanks for having me. It's, it's an honor. I have been thinking about this interview and a lot of things I'm curious about. You and I know each other by reputation and we've overlapped a bit. But this is the first time we've had a moment or two to spend together right. and get to know each other and, and talk about things. So one of the things that I have admired about you from a distance, and then as I've gotten to know your work more and more as this interview was coming up, I know that you have done a wonderful job of framing yourself as a spoken word artist, as, as a poet. And I would like for you to tell us a bit about how you see yourself as an artist and Add some of the business aspects to it. I know you're well-branded. You have a wonderful way of presenting your name as a logo, as well as posters and other things that you pay attention to. I'm asking this because a lot of people in our audience are interested in doing similar things, approaching life in a way that can get their word out. So tell us about who you are, what you do as an artist, how you expanded, and some of your thoughts on, on marketing and business. And we'll start there, and who knows where it'll go. I was born in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and my mom was a big influence. I always credit my mom for exposing me to the arts. She was just an artsy person, and I really think she was before her time. A single Black mother, so expressive, but in a time where she didn't have the accessibility like we have nowadays to get her art out there. She was into acting. We used to see mom do all these skits and stuff, because we was big and watching Saturday Night Live until my, when it was really, really good. <laughs> Back then, when Eddie Murphy and Gary Morris and all those guys was back there. But she loved Gilda Ratner, and she would always impersonate her. And so me and my sister, we, we thought I was really cool. So we would always reenact certain skits as well. She was taking night courses, community college. She was bringing these literature books to the house and trying to make us read poetry. And I was like, oh, my, no. But we had this one bookshelf in our hallway in our, in our house. I was flipping through it, and I saw this one book, this time called Life by Walter Render poet from the West Coast, 
uh, during the late 60s, just started flipping through the pictures. There were these soft black and white images of young people or playing or just hanging out or just being alone, just thinking. And it spoke to me. So I started reading the poems attached to the pictures. And it was about being young and free. And I'm like, wow, I'm young. I want to be free. So I'm reading these poems, right? <laughs> and it spoke to me. That was my connection with poetry. So I had to go back to appreciate the stuff my mom was trying to get us to read, the, all the Nikki Giovannis, the Langston Hughes, and Maya Angelou's, all the Renaissance greats. We, I went back to appreciate those once I had a connection with poetry. And it was on ever since then. As a student, I was happy to read the poetry aloud. We got to the poetry section in, in class. But of course, growing up in the hood as a Black young male, you got ridiculed for like anything other than what was cool. At some point, it didn't bother me anymore. Kept doing it. I enjoyed it. I started writing. Teachers see a gifted kid, they're like, oh, they, they take you out of your wing. Hey, we're going to put you out there. And I was always involved in school functions, church functions, community center functions. People knew me as that guy, the poetry dude. And when I got to high school, everybody knew that's the poetry dude. Things shifted. Girls start liking the guys and vice versa. So they found out to get a girl's heart, we need a poem. Well, who writes poetry? That guy. <laughs> that guy right there, Moody Black. I was an entrepreneur early. I would charge to write these poems. And young ladies too, they would hire me to write poems to give to their boyfriends. But they, of course, they, they will put my name down. They'll put their name down. So I have to write from their perspective. But I didn't mind. It was cool all of a sudden. And I still run into those same people nowadays. When I graduated high school, I would go to open mics. I drive around and even well into my 20s. But that's why I stumbled into Kimberly Sims gives hats off to Kim. She was a big pioneer here in South Carolina. But wherever she was at, I was going to be there. <laughs> and then finally, she was able to get the venue at Coffee on the Ground, downtown Greenville. Shout out to Coffee on the Ground, Dana and everybody there. And uh, I, would, I would drive to Spartanburg every Sunday just to go to the venue. There was another venue there on Tuesday. So I was going twice a week just to get my chops, sharpen my skills. And, uh, but my very first slam was at Coffee on the Ground. I had, had to slam against her and uh, a person who ended up being my teammate later on, Jonathan Brown. And uh, I didn't know anything about slam. Didn't know nothing about it. I just know that it was poetry. I had this one poem memorized. It was very political. I knew I had some Ronald Reagan references in it. But uh, I, I won the first round, like, yes. And it was like, all right, for the second round, like, second round, like, no. <laughs> Luckily, I had my notebook, but it didn't do any better. Because I'm flipping through, and I'm reading. Of course, I got eliminated. And uh, John Brown ended up winning, and uh, which is ironic. I, ended up, I went the night before for a hip-hop battle. I ended up beating Jonathan Brown in a hip-hop battle. He ended up beating me in a poetry slam. Yeah, it's crazy, but I, I would just keep growing and going, and then I found out more about slam. I would drive to Durham. Shout out to Bull City Slam. I would drive to Durham every month. And didn't know I was getting points to be on this slam team, but I already made the slam team in Greenville here. It just started growing. And Funny story, my initial name was not Moody Black. My first moniker in poetry was Mood Swing. An ex-girlfriend once told me she felt like I had Mood Swing. So despite her, I adopted the moniker Mood Swing <laughs> to be spiteful. <laughs> when I attended my first Southern Friday in 2004, Poetry Slam, people were calling me Moody for short. Oh, Moody, that's that guy, Moody, Moody, Moody. I discovered that there was already a poet and a rapper named Moon Swing. So I dropped Moon Swing, but I kept Moody because that's how people knew me. You know, they knew me as Moody. So I kept Moody. I just had to come up with something cool to go with it. So I tried different things. I would call my friends. What do you think about Moody this or Moody that? Black, which had to be one of my favorite colors. And what it means and what it stands for. I was like, you know what? Let me try Moody Black. And I'll call people. Yo, that's it. Keep that. Moody Black. That's it. That's cool. Go with that. So I've been Moody Black ever since.
And it works really well because there's so many layers available to the imagination with both right. moody and with black. Exactly. Both words have quite a quite a range. I mean, moody suggests joy. It also suggests uh, the darker side of one psychology, right. which then somehow touches on black because you could be in a black mood and yet black yeah. is also the word described when you end up with a lot of money you're in the black i embrace all of that and i love leaving it to the imagination because once people see my name i've had people like compliment me on it that's a cool name i like that you know so i wanted it not only to be a cool name but i want to stand out how i write it how i present it because i was always into marketing i never wanted to be a marketing major uh, as a person who really loves hip-hop i watch hip-hop artists and how their team would market them. I had a rap group, shout out my man, Johnny C. Weaver. We were rapping for a long, long time. Was I writing poetry at 12? I was rapping at 12. So it all went together. And uh, so I would study hip hop, but I admire how they were able to promote themselves. So once I got real serious in poetry, I applied those transferable skills, <laughs> uh, understanding the business side. And then just attending all these Southern Fries and National Poetry Slams, I come across some amazing artists, amazing talent. I've seen so many poets. This is on another level. I think I'm okay, but there's poets. I'm like, wow. Then I ask myself, why aren't these poets like big time? You know, they're just so talented. They're more talented than any actor or actresses I've seen. And some of these hip hop artists or music artists. I mean, I've seen some talented people like up close and personal, but I'm asking myself, why aren't they big time? Then I have conversations and it's the business acumen they lack. They don't have that business acumen. I'm like, oh, come on, really? This, you got to do that? And I've had artists tell me, no, I don't do all that. I just want to create, which I get it. As an artist, I was like that for a while. I held on to that whole thoughtfulness of I'm just going to focus on my craft and somebody's going to find me. And that never worked. And I started studying hip hop once again. It, it wasn't even more about the lyric. It's more about the brand. And I started seeing these rappers. These people are marketing themselves. They put stuff all over the place. You see their name all over the place. They have something eye-catching that I just love. They, they're able to really do it. But there's a lot of people that I see just so talented, but the world will never know because they want to put forth that business effort of, of marketing themselves. On, on that note, I would like to just make sure that in this conversation, for those people out there listening to the show, just so you know, the Poetry Slam is competitive poetry judged like a diving match. And the MC will choose five judges from the audience to judge the, the poets on stage who are performing their work. It can be memorized or it can be read or any version the poet chooses. The MC chooses the five judges. The MC asks the judges to score the poem zero to 10 like a diving match with decimal points. And when the poet steps on stage, the judges judge the poet and five scores go up. The MC calls out the scores and often uh, the stage manager will add the scores up by dropping the lowest score and the highest score and keeping the middle three, which means that every poet in the slam has a chance to get 30 points. And if you get 30, that means you have a very good chance of winning that round and maybe even the evening. And for those of you who are wondering where the word slam came from, the word slam came from Mark Smith's idea in Chicago mm -hmm. when he first started the poetry slam. Put grand in front of slam and you have baseball. You have Chicago yep. Cubs. 
for many years, the Chicago Cubs never did anything, but everybody <laughs> always hoped that the Chicago Cubs would, would knock right. the ball out of the park at the end of the World Series and win this <laughs> World Series. So when you slam your poem in the best sense so that it does get a 10 from the judges, what you've actually done, you've created such an emotional atmosphere for the audience that the audience cheers at the same level the whole stadium would cheer if the chicago mm -hmm. cubs won the world series with the bases loaded in the last inning one pitch left and that's where the term slam comes from so listening out there everybody just know that we're not talking about throwing each other down on the stage but we're talking about something more internal which is connecting to one's self and then moody mentioned southern fried southern mm. fried is the group of poets who who gathered starting but with alan wolf who started the first southern did the first southern fried poetry championships many years in Asheville. ago in Asheville, and it in southern fried grew as a fantastic group which organizes and still to this day organizes all of the wonderful poets in the southeast moody black being one of the prominent poets in the southern fried community so i just wanted to get really clear on that for people right. who are wondering well what are we talking about i'd like to now go back just for a moment you brought up so many great points about marketing and and looking at the at the spoken word artists the hip-hop artists and how they marketed themselves and how some people make it and some people don't worthy stuff that i hope we can talk about in the next bit of time we have but before we do that i wanted to go back to your mother for a moment and how she was so excited about about the arts has she ever told you what got her started and and why was she so enthralled by the arts i don't remember what inspired her other than the fact that she was so different not only at home but compared to other peers in school you know my mom's from a, a some small town called Baldwin springs south carolina her and my dad both, they met there in the Border Springs High School. It's finally a 4A high school, which is a higher level high school. But back then, it was a 2A school, small school, country, country black folk who don't know what's really out there. But my mom, somehow or another, the universe called her to know, hey, there's something else, there's a life out there. And she saw it. For some reason, she, she was in tune with it. And she always had a love for it. And this only conversation I remember, she said she always, as a child, loved the arts and she always pretended to do theater and where everybody else was doing something totally different she was like the eyeball growing up so I, I i don't know what specifically inspired her but i know she's always been into the arts as a child and that's the story i remember and i love that story because your mother it sounds like did it for the love of it she was not trying to do it commercially she just threw herself into the joy because maybe the spirit just moved her she knew there was something more and some people have that sense and other people don't i don't know where that comes from i wonder about it she doesn't seem like the person she once was i think it's kind of one of those situations when your parents they don't want you to get hurt because their dreams didn't happen now, she still stayed in the arts. She would put on community functions. She was always spearheading something. Time went on. She was completely happy because I don't think she ever got to accomplish her dreams that level. So now it's kind of like I see a transformation as we've gotten older. It's an age hotel. Parents come that way when their dreams don't happen or come to fruition. And I see my mom be this great, glowy person to life ain't great now. And why are you still doing that? That's, that's stupid. You know, <laughs> but I get it, though. I get why. 
a lot of people feel that way because a lot of people start out with the youthful zeal and the joy, yeah. the, the sparkle in their eye. And as they go along, especially in the arts, they there's nothing in our culture that helps us funnel that enthusiasm in a long-term creative direction, unless you're just so tenacious, you're able to keep at it. So it's kind of a tragic cultural dilemma that I've come across many, many times, especially as you point out, people who are later in their life. And I mean, what would later be? Anything beyond 47? I would think maybe people get to yeah. about 47 or 50 and they think, oh God, I'm never, I'm never going to be able to do this. It's too late for me. I'm going to give up. Now, I didn't have that experience in my life. And clearly you haven't had that experience, thanks to maybe no. your mother or some of the positive things that's happened to you. Every generation gets more keys. Just talking to my grandmothers, I know they had limited access to a lot of things because the times were a whole lot different. And of course, it kind of poured down to my mom. To my sister and I, got some of the brunt of that leftover stuff, but we were able to grow into the transition with technology and uh, more opportunities and things of that nature. And of course, my kids and, and those younger kids, this whole big world of changing technology, which is so sad they don't even know they have the power. Some kids just don't even go that direction. Like, man, it's limitless to what you can do in this world with technology and, and accessibility. So, but even at my old age, <laughs> I don't claim, oh, I'm getting older. I'm jumping into it. Like, okay, this is what's going on. Let me get in here. Let me, let me study this thing. Let me see how I can use this as a benefit to me. And I think we're at a time when age can work to our advantage for marketing and online experiences. And just like the radio station, we're broadcasting this on WPVM FM. Uh, Davine Dial, the woman who manages it, she has retired from a career in design by way of making jewelry. So she's now thrown herself in her retirement years into running a radio station and she takes advantage of all of the opportunities so she's very young in her retirement around how she's been building this radio station so we can do that with with great ease i'm wondering if you could read a poem for us right now my mood has yeah. shifted into that and then we'll come to the bottom of the hour and I'll do a little station identification and we'll pick this back up. But I mean, we've talked enough about these things. I'd love to hear some of your work and I bet others would too. Okay. All right. So this poem post Valentine's day, <laughs> this is somewhat of a love slash not so love poem. So uh, this is called aquatic love. Here we go. In one of my favorite movies, Pirates of the Caribbean, David Jones was a pirate who was in love with the sea goddess Calypso. And Calypso, one could say, is a metaphor for the ocean. When he finally came to dry land to meet her, she never showed up. But after all, she's the ocean. Never still, beautiful, ever-changing, and sometimes harsh. As a result of his hurt, he cut out his heart from his chest, locked it in a chest, and hid the key. Funny what love can make you do. I guess love is the ocean. And the ocean covers 75% of the earth, but when you hurt, that 75% of ocean that's inside your body find ways to come out. You only see constant tsunamis, even when the waters seem calm. 
It's something mystical about its depth, the way it flows, but you just don't know when it'll conjure up a perfect storm. You'll be convinced that there's something conniving in its currents, wickedness in its ways. It'll have you singing the deep blues, drowning in your sorrow. When I think back, every time I drop my anchor to settle in the sea, I end up being in a wreck of a relationship, caught up in the Bermuda Triangle of trying too hard. And when I made every effort to do right, every woman I really liked left because love was my only religion. I ended up with a girlfriend who broke up with me because I wasn't a Christian. One girlfriend broke up with me because I wasn't a Muslim. Another left me because I wasn't a 5%. So the 75% ocean that was inside my body was just tears that hurricane my heart. And I heard that Shakespeare once said that the whole world is a stage and everybody has to play their part. So I guess in this movie, I am Davy Jones. Because every time I come to settle on this dry land, I leave with the flood on my face. Funny how everybody makes love sound so great. I used to wear those same rose-colored glasses. But what do you do when you see that all the flags are red? When it's hard to see the warning signs that everything looks like a warning sign. However, we most times still scuba dive in. We romanticize how we're supposed to roll our boats gently upstream with significant others. But me, I've cried enough rivers that have flooded the coral reefs of my beliefs, but I suppose that's just the way love goes. This ebb and flow of fantasy and fright, how there's a titanic crashing on the iceberg where my heart used to be, a vessel ready to believe it can sail safely. But I swear, I want to talk about love till it's no longer my weakness. The Pisces in me want to wait in this water of its wisdom till it's everything I breathe with. I'm learning how to let go of all the times it may have kissed other beaches. I want to see if I could be the starfish in its eyes so it can see that I'm seasick. And love, I want to be more than a monster without a heart, a captain without a crew of emotions on this flying Dutch of distress, hoping that this tentacle of my beard can tell the ocean to come here to embrace me, baptize me with its waves, fill my body with 75% of a soulmate. I just want to fill its body of water so Calypso, I mean the ocean, I mean love, help me believe in you again. And that's that piece. Well, Moody Black, thank you very much for that. And I would like to ask you right now, if you would, just get another poem on deck. And I'm going to take a little quick station break. And then let's right. re-enter this conversation with another poem. And then I have some questions to ask after that, if uh, if that's okay with you. That's fine. No problem at all. All right. So you are listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. I really appreciate that. If you're interested in Walter's work, walterparks.com. If you want to learn more about Twice Five Miles Radio and other Twice Five Miles projects I'm involved in, twice5miles.com. The name Twice Five Miles comes from Kubla Khan, written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And of course, this show, Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering, is always aired first on WPVMLF, Asheville, North Carolina, 103.7. And today, we're visiting with the poet Moody Black. 
And we just heard one poem, and I, I think we're going to get a chance to hear another one. Uh, Moody, before you do read this other poem, I'd love for you to tell people how they can reach out to you and, and connect with you. And tell us that, and then read another poem, and then we'll continue on right. the conversation. <laughs> no doubt. I am Moody Black. I am Moody Black is my handle for everything. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook. Just type in I am Moody Black. I am Moody Black.com is my website. Uh, I'm also a comic, so I have a comedy page, Moody Black Comic. Yeah, and I got stuff on uh, Spotify, Tidal, Google Play, iTunes, and Bandcamp. So you can find my hip-hop music, my poems, and even some jokes on uh, all those platforms. And subscribe to my YouTube page, type in Moody Black. You can't miss the beard. You can't miss the beard. You'll find The beard looks <laughs> great. For those of you listening and you can't see us, we are on a Zoom call, and Moody Black has a what one would say a beautiful beard he, it's well trimmed <laughs> it's just long enough but not too long it it's fits with his wonderful cap that he has and some people can make a beard just look like it belongs on the wall of a museum in a painting and other people like me i grow a beard and i look like i've just sort of stumbled out of the bed after a long night of doing things i wouldn't dare tell anybody so some of us have the beard and others of a stone for those of you who've never seen me i have a shaved head so i'm the opposite of moody so together we we look like you know two people that have, that have emerged from some place that we both enjoy so anyway that's that's what uh, moody's beard looks like so if if you oh and i am moody black that's it i am moody i am black. moody black it's very simple no special spellings i am moody black that's but i have to black. ask this if i type in I am Moody Black, and I do it three or four times. Will I become Moody Black as well? You might, you might, yeah, it's like the Candyman. Say my name seven times in the mirror. You become you, Moody Black. You never know. I am Moody Black. <laughs> uh, or if, if, you were, <laughs> if you were in French, you would say, Je suis Moody Black. I am Moody Black. So would you give us another poem? I, I loved what you did before. I just think it's a great way to start the second part of our hour. So, Okay. Well, we still on the love thing. This is, like I said, it's post-Valentine's. All right, this is probably a more love, love poem. It ain't the anti-love. This is more a sweet poem. You get to see the sweet side. And I don't write a lot of these. So you you all that's listening, you're being fortunate to get a love poem by Moody Black, because I do not, and I repeat, do not <laughs> do a lot of love poems. <laughs> well, let's hear it. All right, here we go. It is said being deeply in love by someone gives you strength. While loving someone deeply gives you courage, this is where strength and courage makes matrimony. And I often dream of having that agape, the highest form of love, unconventional, never failing, eternal, easy like Sunday morning, where you don't even know that you're doing it like blinking, like heart beating, like breathing. It's involuntary, like you stopped, you died. This kind of love gives life. Now, I've been married twice. I may not be the best to give advice on what to do, but I have the courage to tell you what not to do. Like, never take each other for granted. Never go outside of your circle to solve problems. You will fight, but fight to keep your union, fight for your love, because love is a friendship on fire. So be a bonfire at a high school homecoming, being an odd couple, an old couple, coming home to sit in front of the fireplace, and if home is a place where love is, then let, let, let each other know. There's no place like home. 
Even his home is in the middle of nowhere in Montana. Be too bison knowing there's a field of dreams made just for you. Show the world what you're made of. Show them that you're a tabernacle of true love where you can see God in each other, hear God in each other's voice. While I love you become scripture, dance like the Deuteronomy in your two-step. Show the world your love is faith, something to believe in, the evidence of love, courage, and strength, even when you can't see it. See through each other's mason jars, hearts that stores the butterfly to sneak down to your stomach every time you smile. Smile like you are courage and strength making matrimony. Smile like you hear each other's heartbeat and you know that's your favorite song. Make the world listen to y'all's favorite song. Be Jay-Z and Beyonce, be Martin and Gina, be Ike and Tina. Don't be Ike and Tina, <laughs> but be the best version of yourselves. Be a masterful piece of art. Even when you're mostly broken, make your broken moments mosaic. But no matter what, be in it together, hand in hand, soul to soul, loving deeply, by deeply in love. And that's that piece. Oh, well, that was just really nice. So happy Valentine's <laughs> Day, everybody, even if you're, every day is Valentine's Day. Can we exactly. agree on that? Exactly. <laughs> you talked a little bit about in, in that poem about love you you said don't be like i cantina and so there's a little hint at the the tougher sides of love and while life is wonderful and we're all glad to be alive mm -hmm. as you said some of your work addresses the less um pleasant aspects of life so i've heard it said many times in the poetry community that poetry saves lives. I would like for you to speak to that a bit from your point of view and some of the experiences you've had around that idea of poetry saving lives, because I think it's important for all of us to know that we have the capacity to drop into the poetics of our own nature and it will uplift us. It's a person who dealt with a lot of things mentally, particularly depression, I can tell you things, but I, I, sometimes I don't go too deep. I can't tell you exactly how I feel with words verbally, but I can write it. I'm able to write down all those feelings that I may not can convey verbally. On the therapeutic side, poetry allows me to deal with those things. I can face those things where sometimes I may not feel comfortable about talking to anyone one-on-one. -on -one. If I can write it, I can tell you what's going on. Every time I perform it, I'm facing those things. On the other side of that, I seen the same thing happened to other people where they've been in some difficult positions in their lives. As poets, we administer those things to them like, hey, you can use this as a tool. They hear us and they can relate. So now they're like, oh, wow, I'm not the only one anymore. I don't feel like I'm the only one going through this. Let me try this. Not only am I listening and gaining something from it while I listen to these poets, let me try, let me get me a journal. Let me give me a diary. Let me start writing and, get, and deal with some of these things. I've seen people do that. Like really, even when, a lot of us who work with the community, I tell a lot of people, the first step, just write. Don't even worry about the other stuff. We get technical reported devices later. Just write. That's the main thing. Just get it out. Then we can work on the other thing. We can help you structure your poem and get all the little details and the devices in there to spice it up. But right now, deal with some things. Get it all out. So that's, that's the main thing. And just going to some of these venues, I've seen people who really give their testimony, I was feeling this way before, and you guys saved my life. I've seen people go on stage and say that at an open mic 
whether it's when I'm hosting or Kim hosting, or I may travel somewhere, it's always one person, whether they're on the stage or in the audience saying, this here saved me. I had a conversation with the late uh, Tavis Bronson. Shout out my man, Tavis, rest in peace. He was in a venue in Charlotte. He was this guy kept coming, coming and coming. Didn't know this guy was trying to contemplate killing himself. But the guy came to Tavis and said, man, I said, I really was going to go home and do it tonight. I was going to go home and kill myself. Someone told me to come to this open mic because I've been coming, dealing with some things. But I came today trying to find something that stopped me from killing myself. And your poem did that. I've heard these testimonies, yeah, from other poets. And I had conversations with people who came to me and we've had those conversations. I, I admit, very first Southern Friday, 2004, I thought it was just cliche. So I seen it for myself. Had to see it for myself, man. It's a real thing. Yeah, I've heard that many times from many people. And which brings me to a thought. You mentioned that you've dealt with depression. Did I hear you say that? That's correct. And how has poetry helped you work with that problem? It was, I'll be honest, it was a difficult thing to face. Uh, I was diagnosed in 96. I was prescribed Prozac at the time. Was it Prozac or Zoloft? One of the earlier drugs. <laughs> anyway, I, was, I guess I was a guinea pig, a lab rat, but they were trying out. I want to say it was Zoloft. Remember that feeling. I couldn't explain what was going on. I just knew I was, it wasn't right. And when I got on the medication, it made it worse. It not only was affecting me mentally even more, it has a physical effect. At that point, I just really leaned on my writing and I leaned on the arts heavily to help me kind of cope and navigate. And what really helped me when I decided to really do this full time, when I started understanding how when you manifest things, you speak things into existence, that there's power in that. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to challenge this. Like Now, I'm gonna get where I tell people depression is a real thing. It's real. So I started changing how I think, how I want, what I want in my life. And I'll speak those things, find the power in my words. Like, now the day's gonna be okay. The day's gonna be great. We're gonna be successful. They want me to accomplish this today. And I, I always watch something funny. I'm always watching something funny, man. <laughs> Self medicate that way. I do stuff. I find a reason to smile. That's how I've been challenging it. You know, like I said, it's, it's a challenge. One of the things I like about your approach is you're taking it into the public arena as a public person. Depression would be no different than a heart problem or no different than diabetes or, or whatever medical condition that you might have. And yet our culture tends to not see it quite like that. So I think having the public discussion like this helps people to understand. Now, I think you touched on it. I think that's the biggest thing is being able to talk about it. it one thing that's growing up, especially in the, the Black and African-American community, it was very taboo to discuss mental illness, but we knew it was there. We, we always had a cousin, a brother or sister, somebody who wasn't completely right, as they say. We just kind of pushed them to the side. We didn't talk about that relative. We always had that person. We didn't talk about how it affects us. We have so many things that's around us, man. We, we try to sweep it under the rug. We never face it and deal with it. You got to deal with yourself. You just pass it on. And that's all we've done every generation after generation after generation. You pass it on. We pass it on. We just shove it down to the next person to deal with. And we're dealing with generations full of stuff. We got everybody else's stuff we're dealing with. And we got to face it and have those conversations. This past couple of years, to me, I think it's been a big step where we're able to have these conversations now. It's coming more prevalent at the dinner table. We can have these discussions. Hey, you know, I feel this way, y'all. I don't think this is right. We, <laughs> let's talk about this. It's more comfortable now. And I, and I think that's a good thing. I couldn't agree more. And as we're talking, I'm 
looking at you on the screen and behind you, you have your your poster with your name on it, Moody Black. And right. one of the things I love about your name, Moody Black, in terms of the way you've used it as a logo, you have M lowercase, O uppercase, yeah. O lowercase, D lowercase, and Y lowercase. And then Black is B lowercase, L yeah. is uppercase, as in love, yeah. A, C, K. So I'm thinking... The way you have your logo by way of using your name, and then we talked about moody as in the mood swings, because you mentioned mood swing, and then you have the last name black, the upper and the lower case, it suggests your exploration around all kinds of swings, including your experiences with depression. The main thing was, how can I make my name stand out? That's number one. The fact that it's, it's imperfect, being who we are, imperfect beings. Moody Black himself is imperfect. So it's not going to be a perfect written name. The name's not going to be written perfect because we're not perfect. Moody Black is not perfect. So that's why I have it written like that. To, to Not only does it symbolize that imperfection, you're not going to forget Moody Black. The name alone, how I got it written, like you're going to wonder, why is that like, why that's different? That's really nice. And I have another question I want to ask, and then I'd like to ask you to read another poem for us. When you think of the hip hop community, what does that mean to you and how has that community influenced you and how do you take your cues from that community? Uh, it means a lot to me. It's, it's very, I just had a conversation not too long ago. One of the biggest influences that's going to show my age is a uh, run DMC. I remember being at my grandmother's house. The only reason she got cable was for her grandchildren. And I was watching some music channel and I saw Run DMC. The performance was live at the Fun House and they started rapping. I never seen nobody go back and forth rapping. They got on these Adidas suits. I like, and they're the reason I still wear Adidas today. That's the only sneaker I wear as Adidas because of Run DMC. They were so different. The man, that just did it for me. And just as hip hop evolved, I just became a student of it. The whole elements of hip hop, graffiti, the break dance. I used to break dance and do all this stuff. <laughs> Kicking and spinning. I can't do that now. So I got to use all the arts, man. And it just really moved me. Then I start seeing other people do different things with it. I fell in love with De La Soul, the Tribe Called Quest, the Wu-Tang Clans, the Outkast. And just watching it evolve, it's just motivated me to be a part of that process. And that's why I still do it to this day. I, just, I actually just released the album this past July. It's called Manifest, and it's on all those uh, platforms that I mentioned earlier. And then, of course, I started studying the business part, and I apply those things. I watch how those poets move. Funny enough, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Cheryl Boyce Taylor on as a guest, and she just came out with a brand new book called Mama Fife Represents. And oh, she wow. was Fife Dog's mother. And wow. she, she, went into great detail in the interview as well as in the book of poetry she wrote about about his death he died at age 45 and he had type 2 diabetes and but i remember cheryl now that i think about it reminded me of your mother's enthusiasm cheryl has gone on to be a really serious poet in her own right she's published Mm -hmm. much over the years but she talked about how she and her son malik he was called Mm -hmm. that was his name how malik would always write when he was a little boy and and she saved all of his work so in the book she has some of his little 10 year old writings and things of course he went on to be a, a complete legend 
it's an interesting overlap. I'm glad that you are reflecting on it a bit. Hip hop just it's just a mind blowing thing. Just look at it now; it's so global. I remember everybody was talking about it's gonna be a fad. My mom thought it was gonna be a fad. I know like corporations was just, like dissing it, nine no way. And but I knew it changed when I saw the Kool Aid Man rap and I saw McDonald's use rap in their commercials. I knew oh it's over. It's it's rap. <laughs> when the corporations get their hand on it, it's a rap. So I knew it was gonna be here forever. We start making millions of dollars. Hip hop was gonna be a big thing. Well, and you know, when people throw themselves into experimenting with language usage and they do it at a great depth, it's really impossible to do that with that much attention and fail to influence the entire language domain. Because Mm -hmm. that's what this is about. To me, it's about how one uses language, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. sometimes in between and so i love the idea of all of that experimentation and what's great about it especially from an educational perspective i'm able to to teach young people especially i introduce poetry to them and i always ask kids who who likes poetry and maybe one or two kids may raise their hand unless i'm at an actual specific art school and of course a lot of those kids raise their hand when i go to regular school elementary schools one or two kids they'll look around too because poetry is not don't seem as a cool thing then I ask, all right, who listens to music? What kind of music listen to? And a lot of them be like, hip hop, rap, rap, rap. All right, y'all, you take the beat away, what you got left? And they look around, words? I said, exactly, do you know that's a poem? Did you know that's a poem? Think about it, and they flip out, oh my God, really? They, they don't make the connection that these are poems. I didn't know that was called this. Oh, this is a turn of rhyme scheme. Oh, wow, this is a pun. This is a double entendre here. I'm like, wow, this is crazy, all these terms. Like now, especially with the rap battles, it's real big now. They have these rap battles. These guys, just without a beat, they're going back and forth, battling each other. But they have to rely on the wordplay and the entendres and stuff. And I'm just, I'm listening with a poetic ear. Like, these guys, not, they're not trained. They're not literally trained at all. But they're mastering this. They're mastering poetry. don't even know it. And I'm like, breaking down when I listen to them rap. I'm breaking down. Like, wow, they just use this right here. And how they use this pun here. I'm like, oh, my God, it's crazy. So, yeah, poetry plays a big part in everything, poetry life. And a lot of those guys practice all the time. So practice right. does make for great skill. So, Moody, we're about to the end of the time here. I'd all love right. for you to read Where one more poem. I know. I'd love for you to read one more poem for us before we, before we have to say goodbye. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end on a positive note. This is my uh, For the Kid in You poem. Uh, just... I'm all about being positive, especially past reviews. I've been really focused on writing more positive poetry because a lot of my poems could be uh, it's more personal poems. Sometimes they're okay, but a lot of times they're dark. If I get to the social, political arena, of course, our climate ain't always the best. So a lot of my poems kind of, you know, ebb and flow and go down that plateau sometimes. So I've been challenging myself the past couple of years to come up with some positive stuff. So here we go. We are all sophisticated children. However, we've allowed our imagination to wilt like a flower without water. But we are still children. And just like a child, there'll be good days. There will be bad days. Some days you don't want to play. Some days you will. Some days you are paper airplane on the playground, letting the wind guide you down sliding boards, sing you lullabies as you swing. Some days you are a kid in the corner with leave me alone in your eyes, great skies and rain over your head. You will feel down. 
that's when you be skyscraper. You be mountain, be at the top of the playground and declare yourself king or queen or whatever your pronoun, but you verb with every part of your brain, rule with an iron fist, but love the plutonium passion to make everybody eat milk and cookies. I'm in milk if you're lactose intolerant at 3 p.m. and take naps. Then let us be woke. The love guide your tongue kind of woke. Then let us use the tip of our tongue to taste the tantalizing flavor of pixie dust or whatever that stuff that we drink out of those straws that tastes like Kool-Aid. Let's have a day where we all wear our necklace candy, where we can eat at our own leisure, then leave rainbow-colored slobber on our outfits. But it's all about our infants, what's inside. Let's take a day to ride and slide, glide in the swings. Let's be swingers, the kitty kind. But more importantly, let us be kind. That's what we teach our kids, right? To be kind. Because grown-ups are way too grown for kindness. There's folk who will crucify you from some hearsay without having a conversation with you to hear what you say. So I say this. Let's not let go of all of our childish things. Because we learn how to be good human beings before our little feet step foot in a school. But we even learn so much more before we leave out. For instance, like share, play fair, don't hit people, put things back where you find them, clean your own mess, don't take things that are not yours, apologize when you hurt somebody, wash your hands before you eat, especially during this pandemic, you should just wash your hands anyway, period. <laughs> Live a balanced life. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands and stick together, and so much more. These are things we learn as a child, but our grown-up selves are icebergs waiting to crash our titanic childhoods and the term adulting get on my last nerves. I just think we can be mature, responsible people that never lose track of our imaginations, our playtime, our popsicle-covered smiles, our impatience of waiting for our friends to come outside and play and take it from me. Someone who done grown up himself to depression. Don't put away your childish things. Still read those comic books, watch Marvel and DC movies, play with those action figures or dollhouses, laugh for no reason. And I promise you that the child in you and the child that came from you will love you like there's no tomorrow. Live like there's no tomorrow. Hold on to the child in you. Just pay your bills to close on time as possible. Provide the best way you can. Trust that everything, I mean, everything will fall in place and just love childishly. That's that piece. Well, Moody Black, thank you for that wonderful poem, Love <laughs> Like a Child. And so that's yeah. another Valentine's Day poem. Valentine's <laughs> Day is every day. So thank you, yeah. Moody Black, for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate your time. And I appreciate you having me. That, that was amazing, man. Keep doing what you're doing. You're an icon. I promise you are. And we're going to give you your flowers while you're here. Keep doing what you're doing, bro. We appreciate you. And you keep doing what you're doing as well. And for those of you who would like to reach Moody Black, I am Moody Black everywhere. I am Moody Black is everywhere. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's on Google and elsewhere. I'll talk to you soon, my friend. All right. Will do, man. Much love to you and all blessings. Same to you, bro. Take okay. care now. Take it easy. Bye-bye. And there you go, my friends. Our conversation concludes with Moody Black. It's not over yet, though, because we have a few minutes before the top of the hour. 
With that in mind, I would like to close our time together with two of Moody Black's recorded pieces. The first one is about Martin Luther King, and the second one is titled Priceless. Here's the first one about Martin Luther King. In May of 1941, at the age of 12, Martin Luther King Jr. asked his parents if he can go to a parade, and they said no. And like any preteen, his curiosity coerced him to go despite his parents' disapproval. When he returned home, he discovered that his grandma had died from a heart attack. And at that moment, his heart must have swallowed an elephant. I can only imagine how heavy that must have felt. So his guilt made him feel like he didn't want to live, like that cross was too big for his young shoulders to bear, like I don't want to be awake, I'd rather dream. So in an attempt to commit suicide, he went upstairs and jumped from the second story window of his house like an angel who gave up his wings. He was hurt, but he survived. On September 20th, 1958, while on a book tour signing copies of his book, Stride Towards Freedom, King was approached by a young lady who asked him if he was Martin Luther King Jr. And when he said he was, she said, I've been looking for you for five years. She didn't put out a letter opener and stabbed him in the chest. It took the doctors three hours to remove it because the tip of the blade was a hair from his heart. His heart must have been sweating bullets. Heavy like, I don't know how much more I can take. Because he would have took one deep breath, the point of that blade would have punctured his heart. He would have drowned in his own blood. He was hurt, but he survived. On April 4th, 1968, at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, Martin stood on the balcony of the second floor hoping to get some fresh air not knowing that it was going to be his last breath. But with his 39 years of breathing, he had been asking America for equality. America said no. But you know how those revolutionary activists are never taking no for an answer, but rebelling comes with consequence. Where men and women are made of martyrs, where you only see mountaintops in your dreams, that's where he kept Selma in his stride, a Bible by his side, and a 22 on his tongue. But he knew his time had come. He felt his body hit the floor, and at that moment, his heart must have became a boulder. I can only imagine how heavy his heart must have felt, the thoughts running through his mind, like, why people free, but we still slaves? How come they sick their dogs on us, and we still just marching? What did it really have to do to get judged by our character? I know he had to ask, where was all worth? I wonder if he felt like he shouldn't just, just, just jump down for that balcony instead of being shot by a bigger tree. I know he probably knew that you could only dodge the bullet for so long. What happens when your purpose serves its purpose? When destiny dashes, that's his last two-step. When that bullet stops the music. When you realize it's your time. When you'd rather be dreaming than to be awake in this reality. Because this reality will shine bell the ringing of your freedom. It will rose apart your will to move. But you got to move. No matter how heavy your heart is, let America know what resilient look like, that you are more perseverance than plantation. Let them know that there's a king in your heart, a mountain in your movement, and when it comes to your freedom, never take no for an answer. that go place to place and not make a penny. 
for someone, but give them one for their thoughts. Cause thoughts are all that poets have to give. So you hope that someone will at least give you something. Especially after the landlord gave you an eviction notice. So after stressing, you flip that piece of paper over, scribble some lines, and nine times out of ten, you keep it. Because you have to deal with both sides of that paper now. One side of that paper is the date. Where you gotta have all your stuff out that house. But on the other side is a poem. Not just any poem but a poem that becomes a soundtrack to your sanity. Instead of having a nervous breakdown, you broke down your struggles with a pen and set your sadness and sorrows with a stanza or a sonnet in hopes to make tomorrow a better day. Some say you better pray. Cause having that stress can prey on your soul, so prod your soul to a soul that will listen. Go on place to place, empty out your soul, and sometimes leave with empty pockets, but you wouldn't trade in that therapy session that some people call reciting a poem for anything in that moment is priceless. This, this is for the people that don't know that they are poets. And at some point in English class, you flip past the poetry section to section yourself away to say that poetry ain't for me or poetry's boring. Those who never seen themselves soaring in the blue skies, resting on white clouds, wearing a white tee with all whites and a white fitted hat that reads free. Those who never seen themselves wearing that same outfit on a stage or a platform, mic or no mic, only because they never seen themselves. But if you can see yourself, you'll free yourself. Instead of ripping your hood, you put on a hoodie, write a poem, and make a movement. Because once you see somebody giving you their heart, souls are moving. And it don't cost that much to do it. Just go down to the dollar store, get a pack of pens and a composition notebook for $2 and some change for a chance to change somebody's life. And that moment is priceless. And this, this is for me. Ever since I was a fetus in Pearl Reba's womb, visualizing this day, hoping someone write a poem to inspire me to write a poem to inspire change in somebody's life, screaming for it to come out. Cause the only outlet is this poetry. When you feel like a penguin without a heart song, till you move your happy feet to the beats and the rhymes, the hopes of having a better day. Till you write a poem with every debt notification and every bill, till the world knows that you only owe them the sincerity of your words. And yeah, early in life, you may thought poetry was boring, but it take you going to some things, putting it down on paper that you're going through some things, to make it all worthwhile, and your poets, or oh, we may feel like our poems are worth millions, but until someone give you the last five dollars to purchase your CD, despite them being a paycheck away from being homeless, that moment is priceless. There you go, my friends. Thank you for spending this time with us in conversation with Moody Black, talking about poetry and the meaning of life, and then a couple of poems at the end of our time together by Moody, one about Martin Luther King, and then the other titled Priceless. So I'd like to thank you ever so much for tuning in, as always, to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. 
Twice Five Miles Radio always airs first on WPVM LP, Asheville, North Carolina, 103.7. And thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to find out more about Walter's music. And you can always reach me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Nave at jamesnave.com. And if you'd like to know more about Twice Five Miles and the concepts therein, twice5miles.com is a good place to look. And in closing, I would like to offer you a small poem to take us out. Oh, jazz band, play that hurricane blues rising through the marsh grass, warmer than a coastal moon. Magic June loves steel rhythm blues and robs melancholy to make me happy. Oh, jazz band, When the air is thin, fill my mouth with night. Whenever I recite that poem, I always think about Frank Morgan, the wonderful saxophone player. He's no longer with us, but his music can be heard on some of the great jazz stations around the world. That's Frank Morgan. Once again, thank you ever so much for tuning in. And if the mood strikes you, please do tune in again next time. Until then, maybe I'll catch you somewhere down the line on that turnaround. Take it easy.